Bell crawling under the desk. <laughs> That's never a good sign. You just plugged your device from the audio jack. I hear him now. Aha! You just plugged a device into the audio jack. You're a genius! An evil genius! That's my backup, so if I ever can jump and dive and all that, I'll go back to ham. Recorded live. Live! Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Obsessed episode 302 is recorded live October 13th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I am playing Bachelor for about a day and a half. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Doing very well, thank you. And we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm up and taking nourishment. Excellent. And then Kevin told me he's going to be playing hooky tonight. He's got his, he does uh, skiing in the winter season, so uh, I think he's safety patrol. Ski patrol. Ski yep. patrol. Safety patrol. Those are the kids with the orange vest. Uh, ski patrol. So he's got a meeting tonight, so he'll he'll be he won't be joining us, but uh, he's here in spirit. But this is odd for me because I've been so busy the last few weeks. My son, uh, his tennis team qualified for state, so he left earlier today to go to state competition. And then my daughter's equestrian team, which my wife is coach of, uh, qualified for state and equestrian team for the first time in twenty three years, so they're off to state. And I get to feed all the animals. And maybe when I get back, I'm going to have, we're going to have a discussion about how many damn animals we have. Because I bet you they go through about five or six air fills of, of food a day. That's wow. How, that's how I'm going to measure everything is in air fills. Uh, yeah, because we've got, uh, well, we got three horses, but one went to the competition. So I get home from work. I had to feed them. Uh, I then went inside, filled up some water jugs, and went outside to feed the rabbits. And I lost count after about 15 or 20. Well, so they fed, multiply like rabbits. Yeah, they do. And then there's a rabbit inside. Then I fed the indoor cats, which there's about five, and the outdoor cats, of which there's two. Then I fed the ferrets, which there's two, and I fed the dogs. So, now, yeah. Uh, yeah. How I, many riders do you have, horseback riders? Well, four. <laughs> but how, how many who ride all the time? Really, my daughter. My daughter does 90% of the riding. My wife, uh, she's ridden more this year than she has in the years past. I used to ride a lot when I was a mounted police officer, but not so much since. In fact, I don't know if I've gotten on a horse more than once since. So your daughter rides multiple horses? Yes, yes. That's part of the some of the fun we talk about. She's got her old horse, which is the old standby, uh, and it's one that my that we uh, it was a an offspring. It was one of twins. We had a horse my wife uh, bred that had twin horses, and Smokey is one of the twins, which is rare. About one in every 20,000 equestrian pregnancies results in twins, but it's rare for them to make it. Uh, so one of the few surviving. So that's the old man, and he uh, we stopped jumping him. He just does mostly pleasure riding. Uh, she's got Hunter, who's her jumping and all-around horse, but he's been lame, which is great. 
And then we've got this half-draft horse, Sammy, who needs to be broke. So she claims she's using all of them. And I've we, we've got enough room for four horses, but we're down to three. I'd like to be down to one or two, but that's a whole other argument there. But we we came to talk about scuba diving. Yeah, the, the chat room. Uh, thanks, everybody who's in the chat room. We have Scuba Tech uh, over from Chicago area who's in the chat room. He's saying it sounds like we have Brook. He says Bonafield Zoo. Bonafide. Bonafide. Oh, Bonafide. Yes, a, a genuine Bonafide Zoo. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've got a history with that. That's a whole other episode, too. We can talk be talking about zoos. We go to my brother-in-law's, and that's where the camels and other exotics come into play. Yeah, they're, they're, do, I was going to say, how do they taste? Yeah, they're, they're pretty tasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, maybe that's what we should. I, maybe that's what I need to do. That maybe that be the product that we pitch on the show. Yeah, that, that was all, always said. That was one of my mistakes with the podcast is we didn't have anything to sell. So maybe maybe that's what we need to do: exotic uh, jerkies. <laughs> and, and we laugh, but uh, Zig Sticks give them a free plug here in Burning Springs. But they have uh, they do exotic, you know, buffalo and. Um, I think they even did, you know, they did lion, I think at some point in time, they've had alligator, ostrich. So not necessarily politically correct, but I think always legally obtained. Well, I'm sure they are. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article coming up is Aqualung has a recall. Power line inflators uh, due to injury and drowning hazard. And let's get this coming in. I went to that, and I thought it was really interesting since they talked about California, California <laughs> spiny lobsters. So, Yeah, here, uh, Mac, I'll, I'll paste it in the chat room. Uh, Jim pointed out that I had pasted the wrong one in to the uh, in the show notes, and I fixed it on our Patreon. So our Patreon supporters have, have got the accurate link. I do know about the fourth picture down. That's freaking amazing, though. Uh, so Aqualung is recalled 53,000 power line is it power line? I, that just seems yes. to be odd to say power line. I think of overhead line when I say power line. Inflators due to drowning hazard. The firm has received 60 reports of power line inflators continuing to inflate. No injuries have been reporting. This recall involves Aqualung power line inflators installed on Aqualung and Apex Black Ice buoyancy compensators. The buoyancy compensator with power line inflators are used to establish buoyancy in the water. Uh, they measure about 20 inches long and 3.5 inches wide. The inflators have a data code beginning with H printed on the inflator body. Recalled products have been sold at Sport Chalet, authorized Aqualung stores nationwide from January 2015 through September 2016. Powerline inflators were sold separately for about $30 and with Aqualung and Apex buoyancy compensators between $370 and $700, depending on the model. Customers should immediately stop using the recalled power line inflators and contact Aqualung to receive a free repair, which consists of replacement of the inflation button by an authorized Aqualung dealer. Uh, Jim, do you carry the Aqualung? Yes, uh, that's our primary brand, so we are familiar with this. Uh, the key to it is on the side of the inflator, there's a serial code, and if it, if it begins with an H, as in hotel, they're the ones that have the potential to stick and need to be taken to a dive shop to be taken care of. And that's something that would they need to leave it overnight or is that a quick fix? Uh, right now, it seems like they're doing a replacement. Just swap it out with a new one and send the old one back. We'll send the old one back to Aqualung. Oh, okay. Did you happen to have any in, in stock that were that need were on the recall? Uh, no. 
no, I didn't. And I checked their stock, and I've got some replacement units that are good. So, you know, we're good to go. Excellent. So other shops, I'm sure, can do the same thing. Yeah. So just take a look. If you've got an Aqualung, uh, mine's way before that, so I think I'm safe. Probably not safe for other reasons. I don't have that that challenge. And this next article, Shram El Shrek, which I'm, again, probably not saying that, Shram. That's if longtime listeners of the show remember Claire. Claire, that's where she was a, a dive master for, the resort down there. And it looks like it's recently been opened. Uh, a lot of people had stopped going there after the uh, plane downing, uh, the there was a, a ban that came after terrorists allegedly bombed the Russian passenger plane heading to St. Petersburg from Shram, uh, killing 244 people. Last week, Prime Minister gave the go-ahead to resume flights from the U.K. to the Egyptian resort. Uh, a U.K. food scientist, Richard Conroy, is urging Brits to avoid the city. He says that it's not the extremists we need to worry about, but it's the food. He has the founder of Sick Holiday, a firm which wins to fight compensation for families who fall ill on the holiday, and he deals with about 40,000 cases a year. He says that Charm is one of the worst offending tourist traps in the world when it comes to risk of contacting nightmarish food bugs. Some experts might be lobbying the UK flights to return here immediately. I heed caution, not based on terrorism fears, but because there's potential killer in the resort, the poor food hygiene. That would suck. (laughs) Yeah, get all the way over there, get ready for lots of fun, and then spend it all on your knees in front of the porcelain receiver. says the human body has an involuntary reaction upon immediately after being sick. We take a sharp intake of breath. Doing so in the sea, you'll find your lungs with salt water and you'll drown. I don't know if he's being a little dramatic, but uh, I'm advising (laughs) don't go scuba diving when you're puking. And he cites some examples of it. but I'm sure they can't be the only location that's got problems. And he doesn't really say why. Uh, little indication just that there's poor hygiene so and uh, some dirty water. I don't have a lot of experience outside, you know, North America and Mexico. So I haven't, I haven't run into those situations. Remember we had uh, Dania Buckingham. Uh, she's been on the show a couple times. And she had always mentioned that her first stop whenever she traveled was to the local street food vendor to have a bite of whatever the food of choice was, and she believed that would give her some, you know, get the culture started to be able to eat local food. You know, when they're talking about that, they're not talking about the dive site itself, you know. No, they're talking about the the whole location. Right, it's called the City of Peace. That's their uh, nickname. The Mm -hmm. motto is City of Peace, and it's got a population of approximately 75,000 as of last year. And they're talking about the food processing in general throughout the city, yeah, not just the dive site. Yeah, just not one resort because he wasn't singling out a resort, but he was just saying that really the food supply chain, how the food's prepared, handled, stored is just not good. I would love to have a little bit more details, but I'm sure that's why he went and did the articles so that people will go to his website and find out more from him and buy whatever products he's selling. I'd certainly like to know a little bit more uh, because maybe that's something that you want to check as part of your criteria for a location. Not only is there good diving uh, in some resorts, but are you not going to get sick from the food? Well, I'm looking at some of the places there and some of the establishments, and I would be extremely surprised if looking at the quality of the buildings and the staff and the restaurant, if they have bad food in there, I think you're going to be turning away those people who have lots of shekels. 
Yeah. And maybe maybe there might be exceptions, you know, places that have certainly uh, are flying food in from someplace else and preparing it properly. Uh, he's saying that you're 500 times more likely to get sick at this location than you are in, oh, what was it? Let's see if I can find the quote. As you're looking, I was looking how many are five stars. And if you start getting people sick at a five star. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking Hyatt Regency, the Accor, Marriott. I can't speak French. I won't pronounce those. Four Seasons, the Ritz-Carlton. You know, those are not down the street, some guy on the corner selling food. No, your big chains are aware of this. So that's that's a good point, too. I'd be more concerned with the other item they're talking here in December. This is quite a few years old. 2010, where they were talking about four tourists, three Russians, and a Ukrainian were attacked and injured by white tip sharks in three separate incidents off the coast. I'd well, they did. They didn't. They, they 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 were tired of eating local food, so they were getting uh, the imports. Mmm, tastes like chicken. Yeah. Okay. So here's the quote. It says, "For example, you are 500 times more likely to contact food poisoning in Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt, than you are in Dubai." So that's according to this person's research. And maybe it's the case that every, nobody stays in the resort the whole time. So they, you, know, you go out, and if you eat anything while you're out, you're at risk. But here's something that I, I hope wouldn't get you sick. Some California spiny lobsters. This article says, oh, I'm ignoring the chat room. Let me go. I posted them. Oh, good. Thank you. And they're saying that uh, the spiny lobsters are some of the tastiest lobsters, and you get them in California. They said that 95% or more is currently being shipped to China. But the only way that anybody is eating them local is divers going out and catching them for themselves. And it's a nice story. They got some beautiful images of catching them. Now, they don't have the claws like we're accustomed to. And they said China hasn't gotten the taste for the ones with the claws yet, so they prefer the spiny lobsters. And uh, the the guy who wrote the article is really upset that they're being shipped over there. And he, he was kind of blaming the U.S. consumers, saying that we're too cheap. But when uh, they said in 2009, the California lobsters re- retailed for $10 per pound. In 2015, that price skyrocketed to close to 30 well, if Chinese are going to pay $30 a pound for lobster, let them have them. You know, we import enough from there. Let them, they can have a lobster. I, I haven't, I've never had a problem with a Maine lobster. I love Maine lobsters. Yeah. Yeah. Maine, they're tasty and they're not nearly as expensive. Now, if Chinese start buying them up, I, I might have to, to uh, that one start, I might have to pay, pay a little bit more for. Start eating monkfish. 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 I don't think I've had monkfish. Uh, it's also known as all mouth, mm-hmm. and their major prey is lobsters. Oh. They eat lobster, and their meat takes very much like lobster. Nice. Huh. Not to keep an eye out for that. But, yeah, the author was a, was a little put off by it, and just I, I think it's just part of the capitalistic system. If they're willing to pay it, you know. I, I think as a if I was a fisherman and I can get more for a different market, then I should take advantage of that market. You know, as long like as it's not over shipping your products off off to another country to have produced cheaper, that's that's good too, right? Capitalism. Haven't they haven't ship them off? Go ahead, ship them off. Make those shoes in Mexico. Well, that's what he's trying to tie this together. Is that you're, this is the same argument? But I don't. Uh, is it? You know, Why isn't it? You're taking out materials from the uh, coast of. USA, you're selling it to somebody at a really nice price. 
you're making a nice profit. Why would you not? Yeah, I I sell it to them. Those are huge lobsters, though. Ooh, yeah. Jim just pasted a photo of the monkfish, which is spelled just like it sounds. Wow. Uh, a little ugly, a little sucker, isn't he? Oh, they are ugly, but boy, do they taste good. So they would—they uh, must—they must just hang around the bottom and wait for a lobster to come by and pounce on him. I wouldn't yep. put my hand in his mouth. He nope. kind of looks like that was an anglerfish. If you saw the movie, was it Finding Nemo? And there was that fish that was attacking. This one resembles that. Well, it's kind of like a flounder. It just looks kind of strange. It's flat almost. <laughs> I like the one that uh, looks like it's been dipped in butter. <laughs> I prefer them cooked too. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm. I can't say I'm. I don't mind sushi, but uh, I do like my cooked fish. Mm-hmm. Like all these cooked meals here, sort of makes me hungry. I need a snack now. Yes. Sorry to distract you. Food has a tendency to do that. Yeah, I missed my chicken wings tonight. Ooh, we yeah. missed chicken wings. Tonight. Yeah. I wish that had a back room where we could record. That'd be a good recording location. You'd need some really place where it's quiet because it is not quiet on Thursday. <laughs> Not at 40 cent chicken wings. Yeah. And they are good wings, too. Bone or boneless. Yeah. Well, the next article we have is an explorer says he's found the legendary pirate ship off the coast of Cape Cod. Undersea explorer who discovered the Wyandotte Galley, the first authenticated pirate ship in North America, believes he's found the ship's legendary treasure after more than 30 years of poking around the murky waters off Cape Cod. Barry Clifford tells Associated Press his expedition recently located a large metallic mass he's convinced represent most, if not all, the 40,000 coins and other Richard belie- riches believed to be contained in the ship. We think we might be at the end of the rainbow, Clifford said in a recently opened Winda Pirate Museum on Cape Cod, where many of the explore- expedition's finds are now showcased. Maritime archaeologists and historians say they're intrigued but remain skeptical mostly because he's been disproved on other finds. Barry Clifford's many claims have been very exciting if they can be verified with photographs or scientific proof, says Paul Johnston, a curator at Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., who specialized shipwreck. Until then, it's just talk. The former slave ship commanded by the English pirate Samuel Black Sam Bellamy went down in stormy seas off Wellfleet, Massachusetts in 1717, killing all but a handful of the nearly 150-person crew. It's believed the heavily laden ship sunk quickly, leaving the ill-gotten riches from over 50 ships at the bottom of the ocean. But Victor Mastone, chief archaeologist from Massachusetts Board of Underwater Archaeologist Resources, which oversees shipwreck and other undersea finds, suggests the pirate could simply have been lying. Did they brag more than they should have? Who knows, he says. We know what pirates said they had. Clifford dismissed Johnson and other longtime opponents for having refused to treat his team's work seriously. Why would they be bragging to the judge about how much treasure they stole? They were hanged, he said, referring to the fate of the bell, uh, befell the surviving pirates of the Winda. The, ni- the 71-year-old explorer hopes to start investigating the suspected riches this month, but stressed recovery process will take some time. Once a mass is located and raised, his team will need to gently break it down using electrolysis and small hand tools. For me, it'll be great to get it all finished, but it isn't going to be done by my lifetime. Clifford said, archaeology doesn't happen quickly if you're doing it correctly. Since his 1984 discovery, Clifford and his team have returned nearly every year to the wreck over which he has special rights. They've already reclaimed some 200,000 artifacts, including thousands of silver Spanish coins, hundreds of 
pieces and fragments of rare African gold jewelry, dozens of cannons, various colonial-era objects, and other prizes. A new find at the wreck made him famous, which would be a coup for Clifford, who has long dealt major setbacks with other recent expeditions. So what they're referring to is that uh, he had uh, made uh, a claim that he had found something, I believe, that they don't say in this article, but I read another one. It was off Haiti. And uh, after he had mentioned it, everything disappeared, and he claimed it was looted. But uh, there's some who don't like his uh, processes for archaeology. Yeah, most archaeologists, because they didn't find it, and they're not discovering it, and they're not digging it. Yeah, well, yeah they, but they've done a great job of uh, of collecting and preserving artifacts. Now, did they get 100% of them? No, but there's a traveling exhibit for WIDA that is a fantastic exhibit. We saw it in Philadelphia two or three years ago, and then a couple of years ago, a year after that, it was up in Grand Rapids. And if you ever get a chance to see it, well worth the time and whatever they're charging to walk through that exhibit. Anytime I see anything associated with the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization and World Heritage Committee, I don't think much of it. Anything with the UN is out. Uh, the UN, and I put the, the European Union in about that same group, too, uh, if if you want some free research, then you know sometimes they got some stuff that's not too bad. But if uh, they're more than happy to tell you exactly how you should do things, and if you don't do it their way, then uh, you go into purgatory in their world. And besides, it doesn't belong to you; it belongs to them. Yes, of and course. I agree. They do have some good samples. They do have some really nice products. But I am not for the way they do business. Yeah, yeah. Here, here, here's my political soapbox on the the uh, European Union and the UN is that they want to be elitists who are unelected and tell everybody else what to do. So you want to know why the, the United States has a problem with you, that's it. And that's, I think, why the U.K. did their Brexit deals, that they were getting tired of having somebody in Belgium tell them exactly what they should be doing. Uh, we've got one more article. We've got the ghost ship on Lake Superior. And this was one that you really have to take a look at yourself and see. I watched the video, and I'm not sure. The, it, it, the man is claiming that he has seen a ghost ship, and this is uh, rising and falling in the waves of Lake Superior near Marquette, Michigan. Uh, Jason was that Asselin of Kingsford, Michigan, the state's upper peninsula, posted the video on Monday showing footage of Lake Superior. A tall, eerie image appears to be moving the waves. Saturday evening, far off the coast of Marquette, Michigan, appeared a mysterious ship that had been gigantic, almost as the ghost ship was showing itself to the world, he said, describing the video as channel. Even if it was a ship, what could be that tall in all these choppy waves? And when you look at the video, the waves are moving, the water's moving, but it seems like if a, a ship, if that was a sailing vessel, it would be leaning one way or the other, and it would be moving with the waves. So uh, I don't think it's a ship. It's something. Did you happen to get a chance to look at it? I did. I don't believe it's a ship at all. Yeah. To me, it almost looks like a, it could be like a cloud front or something. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I What's a water spout look like if you record it in, at a distance? Could it be something like that? I've seen water spouts, and that didn't look like that. And this article lists, you know, the shipwrecks that have gone down in that area. But, yeah, this is this is just some sort of atmospheric type of condition uh, or aliens, maybe aliens, but not a shipwreck. Uh, Mac, do you have anything for, uh, you had talked about you want to do 
uh, safety articles. Did you have anything on your mind? Well, I actually did not. I saw that and I'm thinking, say what? <laughs> yeah, I know I mentioned it, but I didn't realize I was going to be that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll, on we'll, the menu. That, I didn't want to put you on the spot. But now that you brought that up, uh, I did have an article I'm putting in the newsletter this month. And it's basically, it talks about, do you use a pre-dive checklist? And where this came from, there was a study done that talked about a multi-location cluster randomized trial with parallel groups, blah, 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 the way you would normally do one of these. Key item is they talked about uh, they had participants uh, at least 18 years of age. They're all uh, certified divers, and they were planning to dive through uh, like cattle boats and other areas. And what they did is they recruited the people at the piers and asked if they would allow this for them to do this on these different boats and locations. The intervention group received a pre-dive checklist and a post-dive log. And they've been trending this for a while. And, and the other set only got the uh, post-dive log only, where you talk about lessons learned afterwards. Mm-hmm. So the two groups. And basically what they found when they finished this, they had a little over uh, a 1,000 divers participating. They made over 2,000 dives on 70 locations over multiple days. And what they did is when they compared the control group with the random group, they were talking about the incidence of major mishaps decreased in the intervention group by 36%, meaning the group that had both the uh, pre-dive checklist and talked about a post. Yep. Minor mishaps by 26% and all mishaps by 32%. So they basically said on average they had fewer mishaps or one fewer mishap in every 25 intervention dives, meaning where they actively tried to prevent issues from happening. And it's quite interesting. Then they talk about, well, what is this pre-dive checklist? It's the stuff that we normally do anyway, but if you're working a buddy system, you should be doing this. If you're doing solo diving, you certainly should be. And basically it was on your BCD and your buoyancy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So talk about, did you check your buddy's compensator? Did you, and your own? Mm-hmm. Did you check the low pressure inflator? Is it connected correctly? Is it connected before you get into the water? Did you do a quick puff to ensure the button doesn't stick like mm-hmm. uh, Jim just talked about? We had a recall on one, right? Yep. Would this perhaps have found that out? Or was that a sporadic fault, Jim? Um, unknown. I haven't heard the details on failure mode other than it can stick. Okay. They also they said on your check, you should uh, inflate it. Make sure your relief valves work. <clears throat> and if you're checking it in the water, check your buoyancy. Then they talked about weight belts. Most people don't wear weight belts. If you did, does your buddy know how to get rid of it? And if you're using a uh, self-contained, do you both know how to use each other's gear? Right. <clears throat> well, and, and that's something you say self-contained. If you're diving with a rebreather diver, you need to understand, you know, how you op- turn him from a closed loop to an open loop. Right. So they said, do you know how to release the weights if you need to? Mm-hmm. They talked about releases. Do you know where all your snaps and shackles are? They talked about air, and we've, we've been doing that really good. I mean, you turn the air on, you check your gauge, you take your three breaths, deep breaths. <laughs> Did you do that? And if you're doing solo, you should be doing that. They talked about if you're diving and then you start having fluctuations, there's a good reason you want to abort the dive until you figure out why. Uh, then they said the final is the normal cursory check of you got your mask, fin, snorkel. Did you test your flashlight before you took it down? Is your compass still working or did it freeze up? Can you move the bezel? And did you turn your computer on? Yeah. 
Don't forget hooking up your dry suit. That's one I get <laughs> quite often. True. And if you're just going back from dry, wet to dry, it's a very easy item to forget. And then, of course, then they talked about the use of mnemonics to help remember to do that. You know, like B-W-R-F-R-A-F, begin with review and friend. And then they talked about different type of mnemonics people have come up with, like burgers with relish and fries. You know, that's the one you're looking at with your BC, your weight belt, your releases, your air. Final OK is all the equipment you need. Do you have it? I think I maybe what I need to do is make a checklist and just laminate it and then bungee it onto my arm or something. I, I like all the mnemonics except for of all the training programs I've been with, everyone wants to do mnemonics, and I can't – I just would cross them. It wouldn't be anything that I can remember right. when it comes right down to it. But those are just a general overview, and, and if that cuts down accidents just doing your normal stuff, why wouldn't you do it? No. It's, it's certainly it's a good idea, and especially you know we're we're regular divers. We're getting in the water quite often, and we and we should be doing it as well. But you know that uh, a lot of these people are doing trips. The stereotype I'm going to say many of them their certification, if it wasn't this year, is many years old, and they're not diving more than four or five times a year. So I think a lot of the result, uh, the success is not only are they doing the checklist, but that it takes the time to remind people what they should be doing anyway. Well, I know that when Jim and I are mentoring, we do a darn good job of every one of these and more. Isn't that mm -hmm. right, Jim? We sure try. It's, we it's sure try. I know you think about going off the back of my boat. We, we always go through that, have you done this, 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 and this, yep. you know, before you step off the boat. Because yeah. uh, uh, boat diving is a lot less forgiving than shore diving. Yeah, you got more time to respond if you walk in. Or you just, you know, you're at the end of the dock and you just go in and it's five feet. Like you said, you get off the end of the boat and your BC's not hooked up and you're overweighted Ooh. and your air's turned off, you're in a world of hurt. We're going to have a gear recovery dive. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's a good reminder. If you're so low, you should definitely be paying attention to all of those. And I think the biggest problem I have in, in making sure I don't screw up something is it's called distractions. Yes. I usually do it in a sequence that I'm used to, but if I get distracted somewhere in the middle, it you have a tendency to have skipped something. Mm -hmm. And Squirrel. that's what you got to watch out for. Distractions, distractions are a huge thing. And then the part of it is if you're diving with a group is, is help your other people, your other divers not be distracted and, and double check, you know, be observant of what they're doing. Do you know, do they have their, their dive belt on? Do they have their things hooked up? Ask them. Uh, they should be able to repeat back to you. So safety story for the week, pre-dive checklist. Yes, I like it. Ex you know, exercise what you know. Pretend you're, you're, you're doing a uh, mentoring for somebody else, and by doing that, you're mentoring yourself. Good advice. And I think that's a good part Jim brought out, boat and shore diving. Your timeline for recovering from a problem is a lot less when you jumped off that boat. Mm -hmm. And that's considering you got good weather and you got flat water. Yeah. Well, and, and no current. I mean, yeah. you get a strong current, you get three foot waves, things can start getting dicey pretty quickly. And if you're somewhat seasick, I know a lot of people like to get under the water as quick as possible so that they, they feel a little bit better. And that may cause you to shortcut some of the items that you should be checking on. Yeah. The life you save may be your own or mine. And I'm really fond of mine. Yes. So thank you for that one. I like that. So how about the dives? Anybody get any diving in this last week? 
I got eight knives in last week. This week <laughs> on, I, only eight? Yeah, I took this week off. When I was trying to fix a freaking door, fix the brakes on the airplane. Oh, how the door project go? You still running the I have a, that? I have a carpenter coming over okay. to help re- reinstall that because the bottom sill has to be cut out mm-hmm. because the floor is not even. It's ah. about, if you put your hand over it, it goes dipped, and that's mm-hmm. why the original one didn't have the correct seal in there either. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I'm I'm certainly handy, and I'd be willing to help you out, but I would not know what is the proper approach for that. Uh, in fact, I'm running into problems with my own back door. I'm on my second back door since I built the house. I originally, I built the house in 94, and it seems that that southern weather hitting that back door just destroys it. So, Yeah, I, I was surprised on this one. I mean, it is, it's totally done. Yeah. But, again, I've already got the door. It's ready. you got to have two people put the door in. Yeah, it's not a it's not a one person big enough to help me out with the door like that. Yeah, it's it's not a, necessarily a one person job. And with doors, a skilled Finnish carpenter definitely knows some tricks to getting it in. There's things that because I in building my house that I you know by the time you get to the fiftieth or not fiftieth fifteenth door, you wish you knew in the first one. Yeah. And somebody who's done hundreds of doors, they. They got that down. Now, on a, on a little super local news, what the heck has happened that field behind your house? Oh, they're putting in a uh, ice rink. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, that that did pass consensus. So it's uh, an ice rink. are not ice really rink. happy about it. It's going to be an enclosed ring, uh, and they're going to have it available for you name it. Is that a municipal type of project? No, this is a private enterprise. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that instead of people having to travel so far because – the one we have down here is only limited to the winter. This is going to be an all year. Oh, so it's going to be an enclosed. Yes. Oh, nice. Well, that St. Joe's needed something like that. Uh, we're one of the few cities who hasn't had it. And if you're going to be competitive in hockey or figure skating, for that matter, you need to have something. I just was looking at it. I'm thinking, well, hopefully it's not another Walgreens or C- CVS pharmacy. Yeah, well, you know Mike who works down there with, with uh, Jim. He, he's a hockey player. Uh-huh. Oh, really? So instead of having to go all the way down to Kalamazoo to play or practice, they're uh-huh. going to have something in your backyard. Excellent. Well, I, I think that's okay. That's a, you know, Like you said, some of the neighbors probably aren't going to like it, but it's a heck of a lot better than what could have been there. And I saw that lot go on sale earlier in the year. They started pushing it again, and you kind of wonder what could go in. Because I, I picture that being a fairly quiet type of activity. Some of the people were concerned you might have more traffic on you know, Cleveland or Glen Lord, which are obviously going to have to have some. Uh, so they downsized it a little bit from the parking. Uh, they're going to put it more central location in the lot because he was anticipating building two stadiums, one that they could have for indoor soccer, indoor sports during uh, the winter that you can't have normally. Ah, uh, well, there's some of those in the area. I mean, it, it'd be nice to have another one, but you've got the Kickers Club uh, uh, off 31 or M, was it M150 something now in Bering Springs. They've got that facility and... Yeah. So cool. Okay. I was just I was just curious. I was driving by it. And at first I thought somebody just might be cleaning it up to make it more sellable, but somebody doesn't bring in three cranes and front end loaders and stuff to, if they're just doing something to make it pretty. Yeah. So where did you get your, your dives in this week? Well, like I said, this week I took from last week off. So this week I've been playing with, like I said, the door and the airplane. Mm-hmm. But I saw that you did. Um, I don't think we got to talk talk to you about your impressions from the ecology dive. Well, you do know we did get some press coverage on it. Oh no, I didn't know that. Oh yes, it was in the uh, 
not the Heropladium. I, I don't know what their problem is with us, but uh, the Nile Star, mm-hmm. if you go, you can find it on the electronic copy. You don't have okay. to pay any money to get that one. Uh, they had uh, two nice pictures and a nice spiel, but they were looking at it from uh, the ecology aspect, and that's the pro- That's the part I, I, I talked about. I basically had an interview with them about, God, 20 minutes or so, and um, they want to know why did we dive there, what did we find, what did we look at. And I talked about we look at not only when we're moving trash, but we see what kind of vegetation do you have, what kind of clams, uh, what's the, the clam life, are you still getting a lot of crayfish, do you have snails, all of those would show the health of the river. You know, are we yeah. seeing lampreys this year? And anything like that we find odd or different or massively changed, I normally contact U of M and let them know this is what we're finding. Like when we found the lampreys multiple times last year, I contacted to find out where they're doing their uh, treatments. Mm-hmm. So if they needed to do one in our area, they'd have some heads up on what we're finding. Yeah. Didn't somebody see a lamprey this year? Yeah. Yes. Matter of fact. Yeah. Who was Yes. Yeah, I saw some early in the season. Uh, John saw some, and we also had uh, little bloodsuckers this time. Ah, that's what uh, somebody was saying something in the last few dives. Yeah, Rob came up. That's why you want to wear your hood. <laughs> he came up and said, look at the little bloodsuckers on my hood. Yeah? Yeah, if they can get through a 7-mil ne- neoprene, then they're doing pretty good. Yeah. But I was hoping we'll eventually get those kits from that professor in Chicago for uh, algae growth. Mm-hmm. And fungus or whatever that stuff is that we're finding yeah. growing on the rocks, both the green, the blue, and some yellow. And I've got some decent pictures, and I'd really like to know what it is, why we have it, and it used to not be there. And it's on the side opposite, you know, it's in the fast side. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the only well, other item I could think about, somebody was telling me that that has more sunlight than any place else. The hmm. fast side? Yeah, that, they were saying, well, the sun is coming up, and she's set, but I thought... I've got just as much sunlight, you know, yeah, as there's, coming up there's both sides. Le- yeah, yeah, once it gets past half noon, I'm in a shade. Yeah. So I'm not sure it's got anything to do with the sunlight. Yeah. Well, it might be something that we'll, we can take to some of the local universities here. I know Andrew's uh, through the Math Science Center. They're always looking for projects. So maybe that's one that I'll have my kids go over there and bug them about. Maybe there's somebody who, who needs a research project. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to bring some samples up. Yeah, because that'd be that'd be something that'd be nice to have somebody take some time and document it, and you know, somebody who's got resources uh, to to analyze it and determine what strains it is, and you know, because you're probably look wondering, is this a normal strain? Is it an evasive strain? Is this a sign of something? Does it mean we're got too much nutrients, not enough nutrients? You know, why is this here at this stage? Yeah, is it hazardous to my health? That's my big concern <laughs> right off the bat. We were diving low. You know, down at Merrimont, down past yeah. the, the spillway, not the spillway, where the, uh, not the sewage pipe comes in, but the drain pipe, yeah. the, big one, the one you can walk through. Uh-huh. We were diving that two weeks ago, and when you got into the affluent Ooh. downstream, your face would burn. Oh. Yeah. So we, we obviously removed ourselves from that area uh, because it's sort of a little bit of a deadhead there. You don't have quite the current you do on the opposite side. So Ooh. it would have been interesting to be able to take some samples and find out what was in it that would make your skin burn. Now, we've got a member, yeah, the chat room saying face burning is no good. Yeah. Uh, don't we have somebody in the dive club who's a waste treatment expert? Would he be able to say, because it doesn't seem like normal waste coming out of a waste treatment place should be doing any burning. 
well, this was not coming from there. This is the one that's got the storm drainage that bypasses that and comes straight into the, oh. so you don't have to process the storm drainage. Oh, so you're saying this is coming out of the storm drain? Oh, yeah. This is a big storm drain. Oh, so that would be. So dump something, you know, miles away, got caught into the, the drains and came on out. Well, that would be nice to know because if you could figure out what the chemical was, then we could track it to whoever was the company who was using that chemical. Yeah. Um, it would be interesting to know. I, I do know that when you're in gasoline, you know it because your suit starts to melt. Hmm. And usually you get out before it gets too bad. Yeah. Maybe and what also, we need to do is we need to uh, – I'll talk to uh, – gosh, I got I make my list longer of things I need to do. But I'd like to talk to somebody about maybe getting some sample kits. So you, you could have, you know, we could maybe rig up some sort of sample kit you just kept on your BC and, you know, hopefully you don't need it. But if something like that happens, you say, well, let me get a sample and then we could find out because it'd be nice to know, you know, what kind of risk are we in in some of these situations? Well, it, it doesn't just apply to the to the lake. Uh, it's more so like, uh, I'll use Paw Lake for an example. Uh, remember a couple of years ago when they started to do the treatment for the invasive species and we got requested if we'd go out. If we had some divers who would go out and take uh, core samples for them. Yeah. And then they analyze some of those samples. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff that uh, would be interesting. And they will do if they have somebody who will go do it for free. Yeah. Well, that's one of those things where if we could, I mean, that's just a getting a relationship with the university, is maybe it just becomes something that every time we go out, we get to a spot, we take a GPS reading of the spot, we take a sample, and, and you log it. And it would seem like somebody who wants to start collecting data because you may be able to discover something that you didn't even tend to look for. Well, you know, like last week, did you see the post that uh, Kevin made? We went out and dove that uh, those two items, the targets we had. Mm -hmm. So he came up from 70 feet checking on that one boat. And, I mean, if you looked at some of the pictures I didn't post, you didn't see him. I mean, his eyes were burning. Uh, oh, from the like sulfur from the – yeah. yeah. And this is 70 foot down, and you're not – you know, you're – only doing uh, disturbing the upper layer of wherever he's at. Right. And if that's doing that to him, you wonder what else is in there. That would have been an interesting place to take a sample or several right. samples. And I believe that naturally occurring conditions can be quite toxic as well, and we just sometimes underestimate it. So it'd be good to know what that is and understand what the risks are. You know, as a diver, is, is there things that we need to be concerned with when we're going down? Well, yeah, there is because we we muck up the bottom. <laughs> we're, um, not, we're not necessarily gentle. Sometimes more than other times, yeah. you know. And even though we don't use uh, big mechanical devices and, and big dredges and backhoes and that kind of stuff, we're still disturbing a couple of inches up down to a foot layer. Yeah. And if you look back when they dredged out the the river, they were getting cadmium, lead, arsenic. Now, what levels they were getting, they really didn't post, other than it was not something you could take out and put in your front yard. They had to have a special place for it. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice if we had a place that we could do sampling, turn in and say, hey, we'll give you some free core samples. You know, right. Well, would you tell us what's there? I was actually having a discussion earlier today with somebody at work, and we were talking about he, he, had, uh, he had been at a company who used to use recycled wood. And he said that one of his suppliers was a scuba diver in Lake Michigan who would bring up these logs. And they, they said they stopped using them because he was just so expensive. And the logs were too expensive for what the market was. But we were talking about Saugatuck, and my grandfather had a marina in Saugatuck. And that whole bay there in Saugatuck 
is filled with sawdust from milling over a hundred years ago. So that bottom is spongy. And anytime you do anything that disturbed the bottom, you'd have sawdust come up. Well, what happens with 20 feet of sawdust over a hundred years of baking or cooking down there in the water? You might have some unusual concentrations of different chemicals or processes. Well, an example of that is Sheboygan, back by the old paper mills or by the lumber companies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was also mentioning that to him because we I told him about all the the trimmings you'd find uh, where they'd square up the logs. They just threw the the pieces out in the in the bay there, and there were tons of them. Cool, Jim. Have you ran into ran into any instances where uh, you've had weird water? Oh yeah. Usually when it starts stinking, you know something's up. Stay off the bottom, but. Um... Now, you've dove wherever, you, you know, when you guys used to take your fire hoses and you had your uh, lake draft points. Yes. We've dove a couple of those. Now, that's where you wind up into some of that unknown bottom, you know, material, isn't it? Yeah. We have we try to keep them up off the bottom a little bit so we don't get all the silt and crap pulled in and trying to go through the pumps. Uh, but you can get some funky water. We've had some, you know, some fire department wells that uh, really gets pretty nasty. I know uh, the well at our station is really good, clear water. A lot of people like it for pool fills. Mm -hmm. But we've pulled some stuff out of the lakes and some other places that are um, not water you want to keep in your truck. (laughs) And not all water is the same. Now, when, when you're drawing this water off, is that the where sometimes like a Singer Lake there's a a intake that the fire department can use. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Standpipe or a, what we call a dry hydrant where you okay. go in and you actually draft through it. Now, what kind of maintenance is on those? Is there, is there some process to, because it, it's, I imagine it's got some sort of screen out there in the water. And as these lakes, lakes silt up, it seems like that could start to encroach on those screens. Yeah. Uh, we, we try to go out and blow them out to, keep them away, you know, keep the crud from building up around it, you know, dump a tank of water, run it backwards through there to kind of blow things away, and then draft off of it to, you know, pump the water right back into the lake. Um, you also, okay, we try to dive them at least once a year to make sure they're nothing major on them. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So any dives planned for this weekend? Uh, I've got a couple of planned. Tomorrow, I'm going to go out and see if I can recover the buoys for the yacht club, pick up their race markers again. Ah. And then Kevin and I are planning to get out and do a flyover on a deeper wreck on Sunday. Okay. So we'll see how that goes. That's kind of big lake? Big lake, yeah. If the weather cooperates, we want to get out on the big lake and see if we can do a flyover on the Farnham. Uh, Going to need to fish, or is it going to just try a standard? Uh, I think we're just going to do a scan on it, mark it, and then uh, drop anchor and go down the anchor and do a swim over. I know he was interested in going back out to, I believe it's Diamond, not yeah Diamond Lake, looking for the second boiler that's supposed to be out there. I know he's expressed an interest in that. Yeah, he mentioned that uh, somebody had some found some had some other targets for him to dive. I saw some pictures a guy took of. Uh, an object that possibly could be a boiler, and I think that may be what he's talking about. Well, the boiler that's on that one shipwreck is very broken up, and 
we're not. I wouldn't be surprised if the boiler that's on that that's with the shipwreck isn't the boiler that was that ship because they they took pieces from all over the lake and brought them together to make that dive location. Yeah, I went to a friend's house uh, actually last summer <clears throat> on the lake, and in his yard he has a boiler buried in in his backyard. Oh, and that was off a shipwreck. We don't have a clue. He just said, "What do you think this is?" And I walked over and I said, "Yeah, it's a boiler." But it's it's it buried. It's like it would take a good bit of uh, taking a shovel and some manual labor to get that uncovered to see exactly what it might be. Well, my my parents had an, an old farmhouse in uh, Finville Douglas area, which is next to Saugatuck, and I can remember my parents cleaned up the yard. The, the farmhouse was over 150 years old. This is in the 70s, and it was amazing how much just over time the ground level has raised. We found gardens that were four or five feet below the surface, uh, complete with bricks and, and stuff. So it was like, almost like an archaeological dig uh, you would do. So I can believe the same thing with a boiler. You know, Somebody just dragged it on shore, uh, said it, thought it looked pretty, and then over the years the uh, grass and everything has grown up around it and it's now buried. These farm sites are quite interesting. I've got a friend who's also into metal detecting, and uh, she invited us out to, to work on her land. We got postponed because of the... Uh, poison ivy and poison oak in that area. She went out and got a backhoe. <laughs> and in this area where they used to be a dump, mm-hmm. <clears throat> she went down 10 foot with the backhoe, made a wall. Yep. And she never got lower than 1950s of all the crap down there so far. Yeah. Well, you, you, that, that, still, house, yeah, that house my parents had, I mean, and I, I don't know if I talked about in the show much before or not, but there's a main farmhouse. And this is a farmhouse that had been added on many times, you know, uh, behind the, the main house, we had like a guest house and that had a basement and a, you know, it was probably a 20 by 30 foot building on top of it. When we moved in, ground level was above the basement, yet there was a door. You could see the door. So my parents dug down eight feet to get to the bottom of the door. And what had happened is whoever was living in there had just, the, the, their trash was thrown out the back window. So the whole time you're digging down, you're finding that. We had a three-holer outhouse. We had an ice house. I can remember playing in the remains of a barn that had long since gone away. Uh, there was a bread slicer, an automated bread slicer in the barn. So there, there's just, that would be a fun archaeological project uh, was that house. But it was, you know, the, the original parts of the house were, were log cabin walls. And then over the years, they just added layers and layers on. We were finished the kitchen. And there was like five or six floors in that kitchen. They just, anytime anybody wanted to do another floor, they just added up on top. But you can do that with nine-foot ceilings. Interesting. Well, if anybody is out there who has a vested interest in some of the items we're talking about, like samples that are local, let us know. Certainly. I'd be interested in providing samples from various lakes just to find out what we're diving in. Yeah. Yeah. You and me both. And if people are interested in history from this area, they can uh, make a contribution and bid on some of our bottles that we've put up. Yep. So if you go to Patreon, or not actually Patreon, go to www.3ws.scubaobsessed.com, follow the links to our Patreon page, and you can see some of the bottles. And I I still have to, maybe with this weekend with me being by myself, I'll uh, get some more bottles up there and, and post it. But you can make a donation and... Select some bottles. And we certainly appreciate the people who have donated so far. And we have Scott Hulberk and Vanessa Homiak 
who have uh, donated the Dive Nitrox level, which they get a shout-out each week for their donation. We certainly appreciate it, and we are being careful with the use of the funds that you donate, and we will be updating some of the web hosting and streaming services, so keep an eye out for that. That will be happening here in the next few weeks. And uh, did we ever get a, a, a tally from the Ecology Dive of how much that metal weighed? I know they took the trailer away. I didn't know if anybody ever took it to the recycler to get a scrap. Yeah, they they took it in, and, and we got some money for it, but I don't remember how much they said it was. I never did get the weight. That would be interesting just to be able to. I thought it was $81, so, something of that nature. I'm trying to remember what the, so $81. I don't know what the, I, I probably could back into it to figure out what the, the weight per pound is, but uh, I know iron isn't as high as it had been in the past, so that's probably a indication that we had a pretty good amount on that trailer. Yeah, aluminum's bringing up to 20 cents a pound. Yeah, so steel won't be bringing quite that much. So that was a good indication. It was pretty heavy. What time of season is it for the dive shop? Is there anything that people should be uh, working on now? Well, now's a good time if you haven't been diving your dry suit to get it out and start checking it for leaks before you do start diving it. You might be surprised to find, you know, your wrist and neck seals are not in the shape you thought they were or your zipper's not. So, you know, that cold water diving's right around the corner. And so a uh, good time to check out the dry suits if you haven't been using one. Uh, also, you know, you've got to find ways to stay warm and dry and before and after the dive. So uh, whatever you've got for a shed or a heater and things like that, you might want to start checking those things out. I know I need to start upgrading my undergarments. Uh, if I get enough layers on, I'm, I'm pretty toasty, which I was I was more than comfortable during the ecology dive, but as it starts dropping down into the winter diving conditions, I'm certainly going to need to do some upgrades. So, Mac, when's our next dive club meeting? The next dive club meeting is next Tuesday, the 18th. Excellent. So you guys got... I was going to say, I hope Jim and them have good weather for their excursion on Saturday. Sunday. Sunday? Okay. Sunday. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to try to do that Sunday. I mean, it's this month after this month, all bets are off because... The gales of November started up. Yeah. yeah this is any time you can get out this in October on Lake Michigan is a good day. Uh, we're certainly heading to the, we're in prime river diving season, and we're just diving the river until it gets hard. Well, the next couple of weeks will be a bit disappointing because of the uh, leaves are going to be yes. blocking. Yep. Leaves will be falling, and they'll be floating down the river and sinking in and reducing visibility. Well, I think the next big dive we have, those are going to be turkey dive. That's turkey not dive. the 26th on a Saturday. November 26th, turkey have we, dive. Have we got any short lists for dive locations for this year's turkey dive? Well, it's either going to be the Benton Harbor Riverside like we've been doing, mm-hmm. or if the lousy weather, it could still be Niles again. I mean, because Niles has been really, really great to us. Yeah, it's been. Yes, it has. The visibility has been better than you can hope. And the treasures have been coming up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've been happy every time I've gone in. I've I've found something worth keeping. I, it still amazes me on the ecology dive how Big John was able to get that damn pipe in his boat by himself in <laughs> yes. the shopping carts. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Yeah, well, who got the stand? What was that like a big sign stand and stuff? Dave Toneman and others were beating it with a sledgehammer to break it apart to get it in the trailer. 
Did you see I that? that was, I think that mm-hmm. was big time too. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff is like, I, you know, as often as you dive, maybe I just have a certain trail I tend to follow, but some of this stuff I don't even see and how'd they find it and then get it up. You know, Dave Tonneman also brought up a crankcase. I mean, uh, there's this huge stuff down there. So there's plenty. It's a peep that you, you think eventually you'd run out, but it doesn't seem like we're running out. We just keep finding more and more. Well, I know that if you look tonight, uh, I think it was Jeremy, John, Adam, Jake, Marybeth. Uh, they hit the river tonight. And if you look on the club Facebook, they got some nice little stuff. One looks like a nice watch with a sundial and something on the back. Mm. You haven't got to take a look at that right now. That's pretty cool. Okay. I'm going to go to Facebook. This is always makes me want to. I like it. Life makes me want to cry. 23 notices. How can I? Oh, here we go. We well, almost got a sign. They got an L and a D. Yeah. What the heck is that from? That's from, that looks like Mary Beth. I'm not seeing it. Yeah, Blood Club page? Yeah. yeah uh, I disapproved it. I disapproved it. Should yep, be seven minutes now. ago near Niles. And I'm looking at some of the bottles she got. She got the golf ball, so it's official. Looks like a little creamery bottle. There we go. Now I can see it. Or is that an inkwell? I don't know, but I, I like that watch in the right-hand corner to the bottom. Mm. That looks cool, doesn't it? I'd like to see the other side. Oh, we're to go. Oh, yeah. It's kind of got a funky star with a starburst around yeah. it. Okay, look at the back side. Wow. It's not a watch after all. It says protected by Sam and Dean. Oh, there's a picture of it there. It's white. And uh, if you look at all the pictures, you'll find it again in a different perspective. Yeah, it's white with a, a metal just before the L&D, the white with a metal, bra- metal plate yeah, on it. It looks totally different than the other pictorial of it. Oh, yeah, that must be after they've cleaned it up. I like that door jam, the knob and the lock. That's pretty cool. Of course, everybody on the chat's going to say, what the heck are you guys talking about? Yeah, Go to the club site, Facebook, you'll see it. Yeah, search for Michigan Underwater, where underwater is one word, Divers Club, and that will get you to our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And we keep finding more of those canning jar tops. Milk bottle. Yeah, that is that whatever interesting milk bottle. So is that a watch? I mean, is that she found the the copyright below the Sam and Dean protected by Sam and Dean is bizarre. I huh? I have to. I, I'm looking forward to the meeting. Just to, hopefully she'll bring that to the Mud Club oh, meeting. And we'll, I bet she does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree uh, with you on that door lock. That's an interesting door lock. Yeah, and I haven't seen John's stuff. I mean, that's if, if John's been out there, he's got more than that. He's got a crock that's like eight foot in diameter, and, <laughs> and he, he found a chest and a safe. Yeah. I'm waiting for him to bring up those big porcelain subs that's got the or bathtubs that's got the feet on it. Clawfoots. Yeah, bring up one of those. <laughs> yes. I just want to watch him hold that over his head. Speaking <laughs> of speaking of bringing stuff up, Mac, you got a couple targets up there by the railroad bridge that I want to help you recover. Ooh, recovery dive. I'm all in for those. Your wife said you could keep it if it was marked. If not, I'll take them both. Oh, you're talking about the uh, millstones? Yes. I want to go get them. Oh. I'll bring the boat out. We'll go get them. Oh, that sounds like a good project. Yeah, Sharon wanted them if they had uh, embossing on them or, or something you could identify what mill they came from. Even if they don't, I'm sure that uh, there's plenty of museums or front yards who would certainly appreciate them. Those will always find a home. Jeremy, John, Adam, Jake, Mary Beth. And it looks like somebody's talking about diving Saturday at high noon at Niles. Anyone interested? That's Mary Beth. Unfortunately, i got to work. 
Where'd you see that at? That was last oh. week. Oh, that was that last week, October eighth. Sometimes uh, everything. Now, who found Mac? Did you find that round bottle? Yeah. Cochran. Wow. That's we've seen them. Found it in the same freaking area that John found his, just like that. <clears throat> he looked that one up. He said that's a 1845 Irish whiskey company, uh, and they stopped making bottles in 1900. I think he said. Wow. So it could be anywhere from 1850 to 1900. I prefer to think 1850, but uh, well, of course, 1900 isn't bad it. either. But I wouldn't think that they'd be around bottom in 1900, or did I they? Imagine they'd be more back in those days before 1900. Yeah, I would think the old, the older is the more likely because it wasn't the strategy behind the rounded bottles so that you didn't stand them straight up and they dry out. Yeah, kept the cork wet. Yeah, I'm still waiting for us to be able to find some true torpedoes. I have not seen one down here. I, you've seen the one I found in Sheboygan. Was that a full torpedo? I think so. It's got what a tapered it? end. Uh, the club meeting. Oh, I have to go and find it somewhere. I've got it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, if I find it, I'll bring it to the club meeting. But it was kind of the, it was that that kind of bluish green glass. Well, Jim, you've got two like that, don't you now? Uh, yeah, one's got a broken neck, but they're they're round bottoms. They're not torpedoes. One's got right. a broken neck and one's intact. So what's the difference between a round bottom and a torpedo? A torpedo, torpedo is more of a tapered end, much more of a tapered end. Oh, so my, my I think mine's a round bottom. I don't, yeah. Mine looks a lot like what you show in that photo, Mac, except for yep. it, it doesn't have the emboss. Yeah. I mean, it, there, was a, there was some embossing, but it wasn't anything interesting. I'll, I'll I'll find it. I'll look it up. We'll bring it. It'll be something, kind of a time capsule. And then Jeremy's been out, too. Gosh, everybody got out this last week. Okay, we got some nice new divers that are hooked. So good job with the dive store getting some new divers in the water. Nice having that young blood out there. Oh, it is. And to see them, and, they, and they, they're excited, and they're getting in the water all the time. And, yeah, because sometimes you wonder, I... I'm I'm always nervous when I'm the youngest. <laughs> That's a, not a good sign. <laughs> well, Mac, you got anything you want to plug? Well, other than the club meeting and to make sure you put on your calendar for November the 26th for the the Turkey Day dive. Turkey, turkey dive. dive. Yeah, we usually have a good, pretty good turnout for that. Uh, Jim, you got anything you want to plug? Well, we've got an advanced open water class at Gilboa next weekend, the 22nd, 23rd. If anyone's interested, they can just contact the shop. Uh, we're going to be doing an advanced, and if anybody wants a deep or another specialty, we can add it on with that advanced class. Yeah, you don't have to be local to the area. You just have to be able to get to get to Goboa, don't you? Get to Goboa, yeah. Excellent. Dave's going to be teaching that class for us, so I know we've got two students planning to go and probably a few more. And did you guys get to, was it on Wednesday of, was it this week or last week where they had the the show at the museum. Well, that's, yeah, we had, what, eight eight or nine of us were there. Oh, yeah. At Dwajak. Uh, Dwajak. So what was that about? Uh, A&T Recovery, talking about their recovery of World War II trainer aircraft uh, from Lake Michigan and how they're being restored. They also showed quite a bit of video of the World War One captured German submarine that is sunk in Lake Michigan. And mentioned that there is, um, I won't say plans in place, but a great deal of interest and rising uh, probability that that 
will be a target for recovery. Oh, awesome. Because it's at such a deep depth that nobody is really going to see it down there where it's at. So, Well, it's about 300 feet. It runs from 250 to 300. Uh, but the location is has not been released. It's being held very, very close to the vest and for certainly good reason. But uh, that would be outstanding to to see someone bring that up and be able to have a World War One and a World War Two sub side by side in Chicago. But the cost of uh, preserving that would be phenomenal. Yeah. No. Restoration would be extensive, but well, you know where else can you find a World War One German submarine? So the idea would be to place it near where the World War Two one is now. Well, that's just one thought. Yeah. Well, I think it would be. They they make they make money on that every day at the museum. That's one of their top exhibits. Uh, we're talking about, and I can't remember the call numbers on it. But if you go to the uh, Science and Field Museum in Chicago, uh, they've built a new structure for it. So it's now inside. It used to be outside, but it's now inside, and you can tour that submarine. And if you had the World War One one conserved and next to it, gosh, that'd be a great exhibit. That'd be a reason to fly to Chicago just to see those two. Yeah, uh, that one in Chicago is the 505. 505, yes. You can look that up and you can see the stats on it. Yeah. The only thing I did not understand that he talked about when he was uh, referencing the sub was ownership. And uh, I understood it's from the Treaty of Versailles. We got the, the subs. At the end of their useful life, they were to be destroyed. To me, I consider taking it out and sinking it by gunfire destroyed. Yes. So I don't understand how there can be any who wants it and who owns it. If we got it, we destroyed it. If somebody gets to pieces and brings it back up, I don't see the issue. It's because we're wusses when it comes to this. Well, I don't see the sense in giving it back to somebody whenever, no. you know what I'm saying? No, no. It's It was spoils of war, so sorry, you lost, here we go. And, and we destroyed it. Right. And you you put a plaque on in the entrance and you say this is dedicated to all the veterans from both sides of the conflict who lost their lives and there you go and there you have it. Uh, you know, to go and try and claim something after it's been brought up and uh, the money's been put into it to be preserved uh, is a little crazy. But that'd be a fight I'd be willing to, to go. So we are to that time of the show. Are you guys ready? Ever ready. Okay, this one is from Rod McCullough from New Zealand. So you can thank or blame Rod, whichever the case may be. A DA officer stopped at a farm, talked to an old farmer. He told the farmer, I need to inspect your farm for illegally grown drugs. The farmer said, okay, but don't go in that field over there, as he pointed out the location. The DA verbally exploded and said, look, mister, I have the authority of the Department of Justice with me, reaching into his rear pocket. The arrogant officer removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the farmer. See this badge? This badge means I can go wherever I want, on any land, no questions asked, no answers given. Do you understand, old man? The farmer kindly nodded, apologized, and went about his farm work. Moments later, the farmer heard loud screams. He looked over and saw the officer running for his life, being chased by the farmer's old big bull, McCabe. With every step the bull was gaining on, it looked like he was certainly going to be gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified. The old farmer threw down his tools, ran as fast as he could to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Show him your badge! I like that one. 
<laughs> Maybe the bull can't read. Definite possibility. No respect for the law. They should charge that bull. I think he did charge. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And please don't harass the bulls. I tell you the story about me doing an off-field landing, and I was my parachute. People called it pink. I always called it watermelon. <laughs> watermelon? Yeah, it was. It's a, not pink. That's a girl shoot. It was a hot air balloon jump, and they take you out, and it's all high and dry. You get out wherever you land. You find your way back. So I always like to go for the middle of the fields because that's where no telephone poles are and all that kind of stuff. So I come down, and as I'm getting closer, then I notice the cows out there. I went ahead and flare and land, and I'm gathering up my sheet or shoot, shoot there, and I look around, and I notice that the cows are looking at me. The only problem was those were not cows. Oh. <laughs> they were bulls. And here I am trying to get 240 square feet of red slash pink slash watermelon <laughs> material together in an orderly fashion so I can get the hell out of there. And I'm getting it together, and they didn't run. They sort of walked towards me, and the more I got packed up, the faster I was walking away. So by the time I got to the end of the fence, they were really, really close, and I just remember being on the other side of the fence, and I don't really remember how I got there. (laughs) You had like a little blackout moment? (laughs) I must have had something, but it's like it's not a lot of fun to be waving 240 square feet of parachute that's red in the middle of a bull field. Show them your badge. Show them your badge. (laughs) Yeah. So I can appreciate the other gentleman. You'll learn a lot of strange things. has been completed. Oh, certainly. Always learn that when you're jumping like that, jump with a female. Why is that? Because when you're hitchhiking back, she's going to get a damn good ride. (laughs) So you hide the tree line until she gets the car to stop? I'm not with her. I'll hold her shoot because we're going to have to stop to pick her up. They're going to take me with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.